0: Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the Resilience Advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council and Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly SLO and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Rees, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields, such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode three the secret sauce for success. What's your favorite sauce to eat with fries, Evan?
1: Hmm, I'd have to go with salt and vinegar.
0: The prize for my favorite sauce would have to go to Raising Cane's. It's wild how sauce can make a difference in the flavor of such a simple ingredient like potatoes. I feel like it's the sauce that keeps people coming back for more. Is there a secret sauce for success in terms of resilience?
1: Yes, I think so. Patrick Odalini is the interview for this episode. He's got a lot of expertise in finding just the right message to make resilience pop.
0: Patrick Ottolini is an experienced consultant for Swinnerton Builders. He was also the nation's first chief resilience officer with the city and county of San Francisco. He gives us insight on what goes into the secret sauce for success when it comes to educating people about resilient design.
2: We know that San Francisco's way of life is very fragile. We've seen it through other disasters. We've seen it now in the COVID 19 pandemic, where a disruption like this changes the fabric of our society. So, we know that earthquakes are something that we need to pay attention to. Seismic risks in California is something that no one denies, yet, we tend to put it into the back of our head and not think about it. So, trying to Convey this information to the public is so important because it's the thing that people don't like to think about. It's a tough thing to think about. And unless you're addressing this head on, you're not doing anything to mitigate those risks.
0: During the summers, when I was growing up, my family would go on road trips up to San Francisco. And one thing I could recall was all the hills and windy roads. I can definitely see why San Francisco is considered fragile, especially in terms of the built environment. What is it that makes a building vulnerable?
2: Well, with San Francisco's housing stock has largely been untested in terms of a seismic event since the 1906 earthquake. So, understanding that we've built up our entire city, about 150,000 buildings, in a period where we haven't experienced a major earthquake. So, we look at all sorts of vulnerabilities, whether these are dangerous soft story buildings that tend to be throughout the city, uh, older non ductile concrete buildings that are collapse, you know, collapse prone in a disaster. But really, all old building stock has their certain fragile moments that we need to look at and really understand from a policy perspective, is this something that's worth intervening? Is this something worth that's requiring retrofits on? So it really gets complex when you try to try to think about building stock as a whole and really pick what your most vulnerable are because it's not just a structure question. It's what do these buildings serve in our society? Are these residential buildings? Are these hospitals? And so often we tend to take occupancies and pose them against what the building type is or the building age is, and then make a determination if that's a vulnerable property or not.
0: How do you approach owners to break the news to them that their property is considered vulnerable?
2: You know, when I used to talk to property owners, especially about retrofitting soft story buildings, it would be about a five minute conversation in almost every case. We'd explain the situation, explain why the city was choosing to intervene here, and also explain that we provided resources for them to accomplish this retrofit within the prescribed timeframes.
0: So, explaining the problem and then letting them know that there is a solution and support for achieving it. That sounds like it would really help.
2: Now, with that, of course, people are gonna be upset a lot of times when you talk to property owners, they don't want a government program coming in and telling them that they have to spend money to retrofit their building. But after talking to them and explaining the risk that they're actually facing, most of these property owners do not have earthquake insurance. And also people know that if this building collapses, a new building built in its place in San Francisco would not be subject to rent control.
0: Pause button. What is a soft story building?
2: Sure, a soft story building uh, as we defined it in San Francisco, you know, is an older wood frame building that's built before modern seismic codes and has a lot of large openings on the ground floor. We typically see these through garage doors or we'll see them through commercial storefronts. And what ends up happening is you have less, um, less walls at the bottom floor. And so when the earth starts shaking, those weaknesses are exasperated and it carries throughout the building and you start to see collapse collapses happen in these types of buildings. Uh, We saw it in Loma Prieta, which was a moderate earthquake. Seeing buildings collapse um, in the Marina District, but really this happened all over San Francisco. uh, We know that there's inefficiencies in these structures. And so now modern codes have been designed. So if you're building that building today, you're gonna be able to take advantage of of current codes and you're not gonna have these same structural deficiencies that we found in the buildings that were really built anywhere from the the end of the last century up until the 1970s here in San Francisco.
0: Oh, yes, I definitely recall seeing lots of homes with garages on the ground floor in San Francisco. Wouldn't it pose a huge challenge to retrofit them all?
2: I think that's where we're going to start asking ourselves some tough questions. The soft story problem was easy. That's low-hanging fruit. You know, fixing these buildings, you're only working on the first floor. You're spending small amounts of money in the grand scheme of things. But if we're talking about retrofitting older moment frame, seal moment frame buildings or non-ductal concrete buildings, then you start to look at a real situation where the cost of that retrofit might negate the value of the building. You might not be able to do it. It might not pencil after that. So thinking about how you approach it, and again, from a policy standpoint, making sure that you give these owners tools, resources, funding mechanisms, whatever that may be, whatever that right intervention is to be able to make that building safe, that's how we get it done. It's not gonna happen from just a pure financial pers- standpoint, in my opinion. I think there needs to be more to give property owners incentives to do this. And then sometimes I think you have to require it. The, the, the strong arm of regulation sometimes is what's needed in order to change that building stock in a way and make it safe.
0: I didn't realize there would be such a domino effect if a large natural disaster hits San Francisco. Seems like this is a bigger problem than I thought. How can we get officials who have impact involved? What will get their attention?
2: I think there's a couple different things. I think there's three major advantages that you see in doing this. I think first of all, obviously, you're improving the structure. So you're taking that step to make a building safe. That's that's issue number one. Uh, Second of all, you're actually taking steps to reduce the impact on the entire city. So it's not just fixing one building, it's fixing 6,000 buildings. And that has a cascading impact on the population. And then I think probably the most important part that goes along with retrofit programs is the public information piece. You know, when you're doing this, you're again, you're you're asking people to think about things that they don't like to think about. And especially when they think about their property, which is obviously usually their largest financial asset, and that it might be at risk or exposed in terms of seismic risk, um, you start to see light bulbs go off. And I think that's really important because, you know, Getting the public behind this, getting consensus around thought about seismic safety is huge and it's a tough thing to do. So these programs take great steps on informing the public and getting them on board.
0: Are there incentives that could make the public more inclined to choose resiliency as part of their building plan?
2: You know, challenges in doing this is you don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good, which we often do in public policy. It's very hard to get people around the table and to compromise, but that's exactly what we had to do getting all people at the table, getting consensus-driven legislation requires that everybody has to give a little bit.
0: That is so true. If there are no rules to follow, or in this case, no updated building codes, people would question why they should change their property, especially with an additional cost attached. Owners will not voluntarily choose resiliency. Their mindset may be, what's in it for me? Since resilience is more of a long-term plan, unless they see the long-term financial benefit of it and they see that other important people are into it too in other words they see resilience is
2: cool that's where i really see the success in these programs if you look at the 14 pieces of legislation we passed in a very short amount of time they all had unanimous votes at the board of supervisors 11 to nothing Uh, If you follow San Francisco politics, you know that's highly unusual. And the reason why I think we were successful there is we got everyone on board. We had a coalition of property owners, tenants' rights activists, sitting at tables that they never sat at before, and everyone agreeing that earthquakes are not political. Earthquakes are serious. And we have to think about this and put our politics aside and come up with a program that works for everyone and everyone can see themselves in that program.
0: I think what Patrick said there is very important We have to put our politics aside and come up with a program that works for everyone. Everyone. So everyone can see themselves in that program.
2: So getting political leaders to think about long-term strategy is very difficult because often these leaders are only in office for about four years. And it's a very hard thing to get leadership to be able to push forward ordinances or requirements for retrofits because of this reason. Now putting good science in front of these leaders Showing them the situation of the the potential damage, about what our recovery looks like, about what our displaced resident count would look like, that starts to get the attention of people. Because one thing we know is disasters make existing societal problems worse. Whether that's a pandemic, whether that's a flood, whether that's an earthquake, these things show us how fragile our communities actually are.
0: So Patrick, what is the secret sauce for success?
2: The process takes time and it's tough but you have to get everyone at the table. And that's one thing that we've seen has been the secret sauce for success in San Francisco is, is getting everyone around the table early and talking about these issues. We know we have to tailor our approach to root these programs in a hyperlocal context so that the community is really driving the priorities. And that when you do that, you start to see a really nice meld of, of, of a f- complete program That you can think out from start to finish. We always thought about our programs from end to end, and I think that's what's led to a lot of the success of these programs. You know, after spending four years talking to communities about seismic risk and earthquakes, it was very easy for me to answer the question, what keeps you up at night? Of course it was an earthquake. Of course it was a seismic event. And after four years of talking to people in the community and actually listening to them, and seeing what their needs were and their stresses were day to day that weren't about earthquakes. It was about putting food on the table, it was about paying rent, and we know that disasters make these existing problems so much worse. So it was so important for me to kind of think about that and wrestle with it and I started changing my answer. When people would ask me what is the thing that keeps you up at night, I would say that after a disaster my friends and family can't afford to come back to the city that they call home that my children won't be able to afford a house in San Francisco. So we know that when we see these things happening in our society and then we're hit with something, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a flood, these are things that change our society as we know it and make these problems so much worse. So it's important to be thinking holistically, not just about the structures when we're retrofitting, but the people inside them.
0: That is the most important part of our job keeping our eyes on the community and making sure that the people are safe. That's resiliency.
2: So you see these perfect storms kind of occurring of, of market forces and government intervention. And that's exactly the story that happens with resilience. You know, as we've evolved in thinking about this and as our buildings have re- started to require sustainable construction, we need to think about how we upgrade our seismic codes and how we make building codes be more forward-looking and less reactionary. That's the problem with our code programs for the most part, is they're clunky tools that we use to try to shape the built environment being strategic about how we amend those really starts to change the conversation. And where sustainability and resilience dovetail is really, if you're a building owner, you want a building that's gonna last. And you want a building that's gonna be safe for people, enjoyable for people, and that's good business at the end of the day.
0: When I asked a company representative at a recent structural forum conference what their thoughts on resiliency were, they said they just want to make their clients happy. But at what cost?
2: Yeah, the, the hard part about building affordable housing is you can't do it without free money. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's not any cheaper to build an affordable housing building. You know, it still ends up being anywhere from, you know, five to $700,000 a unit. So knowing that inherently it's not affordable, um, the private sector is really struggling to try to find ways to... to, to to make that work you know right now the way affordable housing actually works is you're getting a significant amount of money whether it's tax credits or something else from a from a a federal or state fund uh, or like we have in san francisco where we have the housing trust fund so those are um, those are the, typically the way that, do, do, that these things get built. And so when you're looking at you know, the Tishman Spires or the Relateds or the Sayers Regis's, where they're these big private developers, um, but know that they have a focus on affordable housing, I think they're really struggling to figure out how that model works. And we haven't really seen anyone do it successfully without government funds. So I think there, there is an opportunity there. I don't pretend to know the answer, um, but I do know a lot of smart developers are looking at that and trying to figure it out.
0: Okay, so draw the bigger picture for me.
2: Programs like this are hugely important to local governments because they give them a better understanding of the vulnerabilities they face with their building stock. So whether that's requiring retrofits or requiring an inventory, all of this creates information that's knowledge, and that knowledge is power, and then with that, they can make informed decisions about how to proceed. Uh, We saw this in spades with the soft story ordinance. Um, Originally, our soft story problem in San Francisco was analyzed by a group of passionate volunteers that did a sidewalk survey and found that just under 3,000 buildings would require retrofit under a proposed soft story ordinance. When we actually began screening these buildings and diving down and deep into the the data and sending notices to building owners, we found the problem was much larger. It was upwards of 5,000 buildings that were dangerous and required retrofit. So at every step, the city is getting more information to make informed decisions about their risk and really see a full picture of their building stock.
0: What are your thoughts on financial incentives? Are they as effective?
2: I think, unfortunately, our incentive programs don't go far enough. We saw this in San Francisco uh, with the Soft Story program. There were incentives offered early on that gave people things like expedited permitting, a break on permit fees, uh, maybe potentially a break on your taxes. These things don't work a lot of times because they're completely voluntary in nature. So you have to look at what the carrot and the stick is here. Unfortunately, sometimes government intervention is the right move. We know that there would not have been 5,000 property owners that retrofit their buildings in San Francisco if we didn't mandate it. So you have to look at what the, what the overall policy goal is. We knew that the lives of the 120,000 San Franciscans that lived in these soft story buildings was more important to the city from a policy perspective that if we couldn't house these people after a disaster, or we couldn't take care of them as a city, the impacts are huge. So it made sense for a government intervention to require this. And I think that's how you have to look at every seismic policy or every policy that involves retroactively changing a building structure, whether that's for seismic, sea level rise, energy efficiency. These all have to be done carefully and thoughtfully so that way you give the community the tools they need to comply with the program successfully.
0: I learned a lot from Patrick's interview not only about the secret sauce for success, but also about how serving the community is such an important ingredient in that sauce.
1: You know, Audrey, we need to find a balance between pushing people to choose resilience and just merely telling them that it's the way to go for their own good. Something that became more and more clear as I interviewed guests for the Resilience Advantage series was that the road to success, the secret sauce, is not just one or the other. There needs to be support that comes to the surface from the community level, not just from the professionals.
0: Now that I've learned about the secret sauce for success, what's next, Evan?
1: Laura Rosen would be a good follow-up to Patrick's interview. When we spoke with her, she was the president and CEO of the Santa Monica Chamber of Commerce. She talks about getting the community back on their feet and brings the business owner's perspective to resilience. This is great, Audrey. I really like where you're going with this. Keep going.
0: Cool, I am so ready for the next interview. For more resources and information about Patrick Odellini and Swinnerton Builders, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC and Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into Evan's interview with Laurel Rosen, the former president and CEO of the Santa Monica Chamber of Commerce. She spoke about getting the community back on their feet after a disaster.